Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to uh, John chapter 5, which you can find on page 890 of your pew Bibles. John chapter 5, and I'm going to go ahead and, and read beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when water is stirred up. And while, I'm, while, while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Amen. May God bless to our hearts and our souls the, the reading of his holy word. Will you join me in prayer once more? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And Lord, we pray that you would magnify your name this morning through the proclamation of your word, that even in this time, that you would cause people to get up. Lord, we pray during this time that the Spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the Son of God, and that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, in terms of, of where we are in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5 begins a, a new section of John. So, so this is early on in the Lord Jesus' ministry, and the way that John records it, he's documenting Jesus' travels throughout Israel. So the Lord Jesus is going back and forth from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And in chapter 2, Jesus did his first public sign, the turning of water to wine at the wedding in Cana, which is in Galilee. 
And then we see Jesus at Jerusalem where he interacted with Nicodemus in chapter 3. And then he makes his way back to Galilee, stopping along the way to minister to the Samaritans and the woman at the well in chapter 4. So he gets back to Cana where he healed the official son at the end of chapter 4. And the vast majority of Jesus' ministry was done in Galilee. But the center of religious activity in Israel was Jerusalem. So, like other Jewish men, Jesus would travel to Jerusalem for all the different feasts. And this would bring him into contact with the religious leaders who John often simply refers to as the Jews. Now, to these religious leaders, Jesus was an outsider. So in their minds, in order to get to God, you had to come through them. And from the standpoint of the religious establishment, if they didn't endorse you, you did not have their stamp of approval, then you weren't important. And so they're thinking, who is this guy coming from Galilee? We don't know him. Who is this? Later on throughout the book, the religious leaders are saying things like, no prophet comes from Galilee. And so in chapter 5, we begin to see the tension between Jesus and the religious establishment that will intensify as we go through the book and ultimately put Jesus to death. And so as we look at this account, we learn some significant things about what it means to relate to God. And what we see here are two common ways that people try to relate to God, both of which are wrong. And then we see true Christianity. And so those are going to form our points this morning if you're taking notes. So we have three points. The the first point is the insufficiency of superstition. So that's wrong way number one to try to relate to God through superstition, the insufficiency of superstition. Point two, the insufficiency of legalism. So that's wrong way number two that many people try to relate to God, legalism, the insufficiency of legalism. And then point number three is the all-sufficiency of God's grace. And that's the right way to relate to God, God's grace, the all-sufficiency of God's grace. Let's begin with the insufficiency of superstition. Uh, Look again at verse 2. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. So here the Apostle John introduces us to this place in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was built in the days of Nehemiah. And you can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. What the Sheep Gate was, was an opening in the northern wall of the city. And it's the place where the sheep were sold, they were washed, and they were prepared for sacrifice at the temple. And so then here John mentions this pool called Bethesda. Now, colonnades were common in Greek architecture. So it's those, those round posts, right, that you see, um, like you see in front of the Supreme Court building or the Lincoln Memorial. And it had a roof to provide shade. We learn in, in verse 3 that many people used to come to this pool. It says here, a multitude. Now, we're not sure which feast is being referred to in verse 1, But during the festivals, Jews would make pilgrimages from all over the place. So during these times, the population of Jerusalem would go up from 100,000 to over a million. So there might have been hundreds of people in this closed-off area. Why were all these people here? Why were there a multitude of people 
in this place. Well, if you notice here in the text, it goes straight from, in most of your Bibles, it goes straight from verse 3 to verse 5. So most of your Bibles, including the ESV, you don't see a verse 4 in John chapter 5. In the footnotes, you might notice there is a verse 4, and it says, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, the reason why that's a footnote and not verse 4 in your Bibles is because that passage is not in the earliest or the most reliable manuscripts. It's something that appears later. So it seems like it was added in order to explain what was happening in John 5 and to give more context. So even though that, that line is not in the original text of Scripture, it does help us to understand the mindset of the people at the time. And it seems to affirm what the man himself says in verse 7. So in verse 7, the man says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So it seems that the man had uh, embraced that uh, particular superstition. But make no mistake, the multitudes of people who were there, they were there because of a superstition. They were not there because of God. They were there because of superstition. So evidently, the waters would move every once in a while. And there's any number of reasons why those waters might have been stirred. It could have been from a spring underground. But these people were so desperate for healing that they thought that the first person to get in after that happened, that that person would be healed. So it was a sad scene. Picture it. Hundreds of people, many of them paralyzed, many of them sick, people who could not do anything for themselves. With that many people where it's hot, where would they use the bathroom? It's not like they had porta potties, and if they did, many would not have even been able to get up to use them. So it's no doubt that the place stank. I'm sure there were flies, I'm sure there were mosquitoes. I'm sure there were sores and diseases. It was ugly. And do you see the irony? On the one hand, you had this big religious festival happening, while at the same time, in close proximity, you have unspeakable suffering and misery. The religious people at the feast, they wouldn't go anywhere near that place. That would make them ceremonially unclean. They can't go near those kinds of people with those kinds of diseases. Oh, no, no, they're they're unclean. The Pharisees weren't there. The Sadducees weren't there. The scribes and the chief priests, they certainly weren't there. But guess who was there? Jesus. That's right. Jesus. Jesus was there. That's who. And we see his encounter with a man who it says in verse 5 had been an invalid for 38 years. And as we see Jesus' interaction with this man, what we see is the insufficiency of superstition. Verse 6 says Jesus knew that he had been there a long time, and then he asked an amazing question. Do you want to be healed? What a question. Do you want to be healed? What? Doesn't the answer seem obvious? But as we've seen, like, if you read the, the scriptures and you look at, notice how Jesus asked questions When Jesus asks questions, it's never usually about him gathering information. It's about him probing the heart of the person who's being questioned. And because of how it's worded, I think that the question is related 
to the amount of time that the man had been there. 38 years in this condition. Now, the life expectancy of the average man back then was only 40 years. So this man evidently was paralyzed for most of his life. So why does Jesus ask him that? Did the man become settled in his condition? Had he given up? Is it, is it possible that, that he was in a bad situation and that he was doing what people, uh, w- uh, what he thought people should do, but really he was just going through the motions because he, because he had lost all hope or possibility of change? In verse 14, we see that Jesus draws a connection between his condition and his sin. Now, we don't know what that connection was, but And the Bible is also clear that not not all suffering is connected to sin on the part of the one who is suffering, like Job, for instance. But in this particular case, it seems that his sin and his suffering were actually connected. So was he indulging in a sin that helped to perpetuate the condition that he was in? We're not told the details. But in his reply to Jesus' question, do you want to be healed? The man points to superstition. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going, going, another one steps down before me. So Jesus asked if he wants to be healed, and he doesn't point to God, but he points to what the superstition was. Like, I'm trying to do it. I, I got my lucky rabbit's foot. It's just not working. I'm just not lucky. I can't win. Everybody else at least has a shot, but not me. Do you see where he's placing his confidence? His hope is not in God, but his hope is in chance. His hope is in his circumstance. And so many people go through life like this. It's part of the reason that people gamble or play the lottery. But superstition is insufficient. This man does not need the waters to be stirred. This man needs Jesus. Jesus is what this man needs. And what superstition was unable to do in 38 years, Jesus was able to do in an instant. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. In verse 9, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. If we're going to relate to God in a way that saves, we must turn away from superstition and turn to God. And don't think that Christians are exempt from superstition, right? So it's not just the unbelievers out there, the pagans out there somewhere who are participating in superstition. There's all kinds of superstition in the name of Christianity. So one would be the prosperity gospel, for instance. The so-called health and wealth gospel is nothing but superstition. It says, if I just have enough faith, then God will make me rich. If I just have enough faith, then God will make me perfectly healthy. That is superstition in the guise of Christianity. And then other superstitions, maybe closer to home, are things like, if I just pray in a certain kind of way, with a certain kind of formula, Remember the prayer, Jabez, anybody? If I just pray these specific words in this kind of way, then God will bless me. That's superstition. 
That's relying on the way that you're saying things rather than the God that you're saying the things to. It's superstition. Another one is, well, if I just dress a certain way, I know how those heathens out there dress, but if I, if I dress in my Sunday's best and come, then God will really, really accept me. That's superstition. It's not true. God does not look at the external appearance. God is a God who looks on the heart. He wants people who are committed to him, who trust in him. I remember when I was a new believer and I was so hungry for all things having to do with Christ in the word that I found myself venturing into every Christian bookstore in Philly. And and back then, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that there are many of them around today, um, but they sold all, all kinds of like little trinkets, little Christianized trinkets, like all kinds of little fishes and bumper stickers and these kinds of things. And I'm just looking around, looking for something. And I came across this, this thing that was like a, it was a little silver cross, right? Little metal, silver metal cross. Had some weight to it. Um, and it's, it, was, it was called a pocket cross. And it's basically, if you re- read the, the instructions, it said, uh, you know, this cross is a pocket cross. And the purpose of it is to remind you of Jesus. So in those moments where you feel tempted or in those moments when you feel scared, scared, just take out the cross and just think about Jesus. And so I said, oh, okay, I want to think about Jesus. You know, new, new believer in my zeal. So I took the little pocket cross, put it in my pocket. And so in those moments, I would, that's what I would do. The moments I was feeling fearful, the moments I was feeling tempted, took the cross out, held on to it, and, and I prayed sometime, and I thought about Jesus. And within a couple days, out of nowhere, I'm convinced that it was a miracle. I have no way to prove it, but I think it was a miracle <laughs> that within a couple days, I reached into my pocket, <laughs> and that cross, it, it wasn't there. <laughs> I could not find it anywhere. And it was heavy enough that if it would have fell out, I would have heard it. Like, it was nowhere to be found. And in that moment, I was deeply convicted. And I didn't hear an audible voice, but the sense that I heard from God is that you don't need a pocket cross to trust in me and to rely on me. All you need is my word. All you need is the word of God. The word of God is sufficient. Superstition is insufficient. The problem with superstition in Christianity is that it makes God out to be some kind of genie that we can control with our actions, which if that were true, and it's not, but if that were true, then that would actually make us God, right? You know that. If, if God did what we wanted him to do because we did things a certain way, we would actually be the ones who are in control. God has revealed exactly who he is in his word. We don't have to guess What Christians are called to do is to believe God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. Psalm 28, 7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. So our hope is to be in God and in God alone. And so all is well. The man is healed. And then John throws in a phrase at the end of verse 9. He says, Now, that day was the Sabbath. It's not an accident that he points that out. That phrase is meant to alert us to the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, which brings us to our second point, which is the insufficiency of legalism. 
the insufficiency of legalism. Now, legalism is a word that's commonly used among Christians, and it's commonly misused. So what is legalism? There's a number of ways that it can be used, but the simplest sense that we see in this passage, I'm just going to give a brief definition of legalism. It is attempting to earn God's favor by adding to the law of God. Attempting to earn God's favor by adding to the law of God. So when it says here in verse 9 that that day was the Sabbath, it's pointing back to the law of God. It's pointing back to the fourth commandment, Exodus 31, verse 15. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. So the Sabbath was given by God to Israel to distinguish them as a people and to provide rest for them. The Sabbath glorified God, and it was good for the people of God. So that was the law. But what we see here in verse 10 is we see adding to the law. Another way to look at it might be to build a fence around the law. And then that fence becomes the new standard. That is legalism. So verse 10, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. That is not what the law says. We just, we, just, we just heard it. Exodus 31, 15 does not say on the seventh day you shall not take up your bed. It says on the seventh day, the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. So what the Jews did was they read the law and then they said to themselves, okay, six days you work, seventh day is a day of rest. Okay, we got that. Um, but, but wait, what is work? Like, what are we talking about here when we're talking about work? And what they did was they added 39 other things that constituted work, and one of those things was carrying a mat. <laughs> and so they began to enforce that. So legalism sets up a standard outside of God's standard, and it's usually, almost always, something that's observable externally, and then begins to measure oneself and others by that standard and begins to keep a scorecard. Jesus is aware of this, and so he is strategic in what he tells the man to do in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. He could have just told him to get up. He didn't have to say, take up your bed. He could have just said, get up, and that would have been enough to get the man up. But he's coming right at the legalism of the religious leaders. And so by telling him to pick up his mat, Jesus is picking a fight. He's picking a fight. <laughs> a few observations about legalism here in these verses. Number one, observation number one. The legalist does not rejoice in God's grace in the lives of others. The legalist does not rejoice in God's grace in the lives of others. We're going to talk about God's grace in a minute, but notice verse 10. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Do you see the distorted priorities? This man has just been healed. He's been set free from his affliction. This man was afflicted for 38 years, and he's been healed. Jesus has healed him. And their focus is not on the fact that he's been healed, but the fact that he's carrying a mat. What's up with that? That's legalism. Second, the legalist pursuit of Jesus is not rooted in love for Jesus. 
The legalist pursuit of Jesus is not rooted in love for Jesus. Verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? So we hear them inquiring about Jesus. Who is the man? Who's the man who did this? They want to find Jesus. They want to be around Jesus. They want to talk to Jesus. But it's not because they want to thank Jesus or give God praise for Jesus. But they're inquiring because they want to rebuke him. They want to examine him. And so it is with the legalists today. They base their relationship with God and they judge other people based on observable external things like dress or quiet times or hairstyles or music styles or homeschooling. But it's not out of a love for Jesus that they do these things. It's out of a desire to justify themselves before God. Here's a great quote from Christian author Tony Reinke on legalism. It says this, quote, At its most dangerous level, legalism is a false gospel and a false hope. Legalism is the lie that says God's pleasure and joy in me is dependent upon my performance rather than the finished work of Christ. It is legalism that causes the Pharisee to look proudly into the sky in the presence of a tax collector. It is legalism that causes a poor missionary in Africa to think God is more pleased with him than an American Christian businessman driving a Mercedes. It is legalism that causes the preacher behind the pulpit to think God is more pleased with him than the tattooed Christian teenager sitting in the back row. Legalism is the lie that God will find more pleasure in me because my obedience is greater than others, or that God looks at me with disgust because I'm not living up to his expectations. It is the failure to remember that God's pleasure in us comes outside of us in the finished work of Christ So in what ways are you tempted to be legalistic this morning? Could it be in your particular theological perspective? Like, we reformed. We got our doctrine straight. We are Baptist. We ain't like them Presbyterians who meet in the same building. We are Baptist. You know what I'm saying? Get it right. Are you tempted towards legalism in your, your Bible reading, your quiet times? I got, I got all seven of my quiet times in, even on Sunday. I checked the box off seven times this week, son. How about you? How's your quiet time going? <laughs> How about evangelism? Are you tempted towards legalism and evangelism? Maybe God has given you a particular grace to share the gospel with many people. We're all commanded to do it, but God has really graced you. And are you looking down on others who may not have shared the gospel as many times as you did this week? Or on the flip side, are you condemning yourself because you didn't share the gospel this week? In any event, either way, we have to avoid that temptation towards assuming that our right standing with God is based on our performance before God. So those are two wrong ways to relate to God. And there's a third way which, which to relate to God, which is actually biblical Christianity in this text. And that third way is the way of the all-sufficiency of grace. And that's our final point, the all-sufficiency of God's grace. Look at verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. 
So observation number one about the grace of God is that the grace of God is sovereign. (laughs) The grace of God is sovereign. Did you notice what it said in verse 3? It said there were a multitude of invalids. So they were all needy. We're talking about a huge group of needy, desperate people. And Jesus could have healed them all. Jesus had the power within himself to heal every last one of the invalids who were there. That's not what he did. He went to one. He went to one out of the multitudes that were there. That is the sovereignty of grace. And it's not like Jesus went to the friendliest one out of them, right? So Jesus didn't look at the multitude and say, oh man, this this one looks like a really, really nice guy. Let me go to him and let me heal him. That's not what happened. This text does not paint a flattering portrait of this man. I don't know if you noticed. One, nowhere does it speak of the man's faith. So it doesn't say anywhere that the man actually trusted in and believed in Jesus. Also, nowhere does it mention his gratitude. No, it's just not that to be found in the text. There's, there's nowhere here where the man says, thank you, Lord, for healing me. Unlike so many who were healed and gave God praise and gave God thanks. Verse 13, we see that he didn't even take the time to find out who Jesus is. So this man received his healing and then he just, he was just on his way. And then in verse 15, it seems that he's more concerned with pleasing the religious leaders than anything else. There's a sharp contrast between him and the dude and the blind man that, that was healed in John 9. So Jesus didn't heal this guy because he had good morals. But that's what grace does. Grace doesn't choose the best. Grace chooses the worst. So if you, if you have been saved by the grace of God this morning, it's not because of your performance that God saved you. It's not because you were the best candidate for salvation. God chooses the lowly things. He chooses the despised things of this world to bring to shame or to bring to naught the things that are. God didn't, God, he didn't choose the one with the most potential. <laughs> you know, in that society, this man was old. This was, a, this was a senior citizen in that society. He did not have a lot of life left ahead of him. But yet grace, God's grace chose him. Grace is sovereign. Second observation about grace is that grace is powerful. Grace is powerful. Verse 8, get up. At once the man was healed. (laughs) Think about this. This man had been paralyzed for 38 years. Consider the atrophy of his muscles, for instance. You ever break a bone and wear a cast? You have a cast on for six to eight weeks. You get the cast taken off and and the muscles are atrophied because they haven't been used very much. Well, how about 38 years of atrophy? In a single word, get up. It's over. It's done. The man is renewed. The man is healed. There was nothing gradual about this man's healing. It was instantaneous. Jesus spoke the word and it happened. That's power. That is power. 
Brother Butterball. It's power, man. Grace is powerful. Third observation about grace is that it changes us. Grace changes us. Look at verse 14. It says, see, you are well. Go and sin no more. God does not save us to remain in our sins. Titus 2.11 says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the grace of God is not meant to leave us where we are. It, it receives us where we are, but it doesn't leave us where we are. What, what the grace of God is meant to do is to change us and to transform us more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace changes us. He says, see you are well, go and sin no more. And we can't get the order wrong, right? Notice that he says, see you are well first, and then he says, go and sin no more. So that's grace. Grace says, see you are well, sin no more. Legalism says, sin no more, and God will make you well. Those are two completely different things. That's the difference between life and death, and it's the difference between Christianity and everything else. In Christianity, God does not accept us on the basis of our performance. God comes to us in grace, to the powerless, to the weak, and to the needy. He says, get up, and then we get up, and then he, he by the Spirit, causes us to walk in his ways um, so that we might not sin. And I love that Jesus doesn't lower his standard at all, right? So, so these, Jesus doesn't say, there's grace, um, and, and you're going to be fine, so it doesn't really matter how, how you live. No, Jesus, Jesus is the Holy One. He's the Holy One of God. So his, perfect, his standard is perfection, and it remains the same. Praise God for the gospel that, that we're being transformed more and more, and, and we have not reached that point of perfection, those of us who are Christians, but the perfection of Jesus we have received through trusting in Christ, and that is the power that compels us to continue to pursue our God. Now, just a couple things we need to notice. One question I have is, do you see yourself among these multitudes? Do you see yourself among the blind, among the paralyzed, among the lame? In Luke 4.18, the Lord Jesus says something very interesting. He, he quotes this prophecy from Isaiah and says that it's speaking about him. So Jesus says this is, this, this is fulfilled in him. He says, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus says that, when he speaks of the poor, he not only has the actual physical poor, those who are actually in monetary poverty in mind, but he has the spiritually poor in mind. He has the spiritually blind in mind. He has uh, the spiritually oppressed 
and mine. And those are the ones that Jesus came to save. That's us. We were all dead in our transgressions and our sins. And Jesus, to all of us, those who trusted in him, Jesus said, get up. And we got up by the grace of God. In John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so I just want to share, if, if, and I want to remind us, I want to remind some and share maybe for the first time with others. If you are a Christian this morning, it's not because of you, but it's because of a decision that God made before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father made a pact with Jesus that he would give Jesus a people called the elect, that he would give to Jesus. And all of those people that the Father gave to the Son, the Father told the Son to tell them to get up. And what happened for us in time is that Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins, and then Jesus got up. So he got up first. He was the first one to get up as the first fruits of the resurrection. And then since that time, as we've come into the world, anyone who has ever been born again, so if you've been regenerated, if you've been born again from above, that happened because at regeneration, Jesus said, get up. And we arose from our spiritual death to eternal life. If you're a Christian, as we continually walk with God, on a daily basis, as we repent and believe, when we fall in our sins, Jesus says, get up. Do you want to be healed? Get up. I want to talk to two people right now. One, you have, you're not a Christian. You came here this morning, you know you're not a Christian. And you have been walking in rebellion to God. And you know it. You know. You know that God is real. You know that he exists. You even know that it's the God of the Bible. You, you are aware of this. But for some reason, something that happened in your past perhaps. You've turned your back on God, and you're rebelling against him right now. If that's you, God is saying, Jesus is saying to you right now, get up. Do you want to be healed? Trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone. He can heal all your hurts. The way you think it is is not actually how it is. 
Turn to the word of God and trust in Christ. Get up. Why will you die in your sins? Why? There's another person. You are a Christian. And you've been wrestling with your sin for so long without victory. It's been years. You thought that you would defeat this sin years ago. And you're still giving in. You're still giving in. You've given up hope. You wonder, am I even a Christian? I still struggle in this way to this day. Jesus is saying to you, get up. Do you want to be healed? My grace is sufficient for you. My cross is sufficient for you. My resurrection is sufficient for you. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness through your knowledge of Jesus. Confess your sin. Bring it to the light. Turn from the darkness. Get up. Get up. To all of us, brothers and sisters, the good news this morning is that though the time is coming when we're all going to die, we're all going to go to the grave, all of us, children, that includes you. If you're a child in here this morning, you're listening to this sermon, children, we're all going to die one day. The day is going to come when we're all going to have to stand before God. And the only way, children, we're going to be able to do that and not be punished forever because of our sin is through trust, trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus. So when that day comes and all of us die, the good news for the Christian is that the time is coming when Jesus is going to say to the Christians, to those who've labored, to those who've trusted in his name, he's going to say, get up! And we're going to rise from the grave. And we're going to see his face. And we're going to enjoy him. We're going to worship him. We're going to delight in him. We're going to sing his praises forever and ever and ever. That is our hope. Christ is risen because he's risen. We shall be risen along with him and along with all other believers. So today is the day of salvation. Get up, get up, get up. So that when that final day comes, we'll all get up together and we'll celebrate his name. Hallelujah. Glory to Christ. All I have is Christ. Let's pray. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Lord, we worship you. Thank you. Thank you for calling us to get up. Lord, we pray that you would wake us up. Wake up our affections. Wake up our love for you. Stir us, stir us that we would not settle for dead, cold religion. But that we would pursue you on a daily basis with vibrant, affected, fervent faith. Let us never be lacking in zeal, but help us to keep our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And for any who have not trusted in you, I pray that even now as we take the Lord's Supper, that they would believe, that they would get up, and that they would trust in Jesus. We love you. Bless the hearing of your word to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.